contest, I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible and you're a little unfamiliar with the location of Ephesians, it's on page 1158 in your pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5. Just a reminder, we, uh, next Sunday evening is our second, second Sunday supper. So if you'd like to come, it's an all-church potluck. It's at 6 o'clock immediately following the 5 p.m. service. And the, the only agenda is we hang out and we eat. And so it's a great time to meet people get to know people. Uh, it's a potluck, so you have to bring something. I think there's sign-up sheets downstairs after the service, so we'd love to have you come to that. That's next Sunday evening. Ephesians 5, and we're looking at verses 22 to 24 today. It says in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. <sighs> All righty then. Yeah, you've been waiting to watch me squirm, haven't you? And now the day has arrived. Well, one thing we can all agree upon from this text is that this shows us one of the advantages and values of preaching through a book of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, because it forces you to look at the hard stuff. You know, if you're doing a, a sermon series that's topical or it's based upon the, you know, uh, latest pop evangelical best-selling book, I mean, you, you can kind of touch on different things, but when you at least that's what I'm finding. When I discipline myself to preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, you've you got to look at everything that's in there, and you can't just duck things. And this is certainly one of those texts that's like, whew, this is not uh, uh, palatable to our cult current cultural climate. So we need to wrestle with this. So I would ask you if you'd just indulge me in a word of prayer before we begin. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you are truly awesome. There is no one but you. You are the only one who can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. No husband can do that for us. No wife, no church, no uh, lottery jackpot. There's nothing, God, in this world that can fulfill our deepest needs but you. And so we turn again to you this morning, God, to worship you as our God. I thank you, Lord, for our praise team and the great music they gave us and helping us to focus our hearts on you. And now, God, as we come to your word, we pray that you'd help us to understand it. Lord, we don't want to be cafeteria Christians, picking and choosing what we like and don't like in the Bible. God, you are not some kind of cosmic Mr. Potato Head that we plug in the different features that we like and rearrange. We don't make you, God. You made us. And you made marriage. And you made this world. And so, God, as we come to your word, I pray that you'd teach us, that you would help us to, to hear what your word has to say, Lord, give me the words to speak, I pray, and uh, may you speak to these people. Speak to marriages, speak to single adults, speak to children, God. Touch us through your word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Again, I, I recognize that even just reading those verses, maybe you know, your back gets up and it's like, whoa, what is this stuff? 
So what I'd like to do is just tell you where I'm going to go with this text so there's kind of no surprises. You know what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, the first thing I want to do is lay out the meaning of the text. I want to just sit and listen to what the text has to say. I want to see what it actually is saying. We're just going to sit. And as biblical uh, Christians who are trying to live our lives by God's word, that's always the first step, is to listen to the text. And then once we've listened to the text, the second thing I'd like to do is listen to our culture. I'd like to consider uh, cultural concerns, cultural objections, how people today, including myself as a modern person, wrestle with this text, and I want to try to sort that out. And then once we've listened to the text and listened to the culture, then what I'd like to do is look at practical application and say, what might this look like in the 21st century on the south shore of Boston with real modern people who aren't living back in some time warp but are living here today, how could this possibly be lived out and played out? So that's sort of the the three things I'd like to do. So the first thing is just to sit with the text and see what it's saying in Ephesians 5. So look at your text with me. Look at the, the, the scripture. It begins, wives, submit to your husbands. So the key word here really in this text is submit. It's the main verb. It's the command that's being given. Uh, and then it appears again in verse 24 two times. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands into everything. That word submit, uh, as we studied two weeks ago, in Greek means to place oneself under. It's the Greek word hupatasso, which hupa means under and tasso means to order or arrange. So the basic idea of hupatasso in, in Greek is to place oneself under the authority or leadership of another. That's just what the word means. Anytime you find it in the New Testament, that's what it means. Whether that's the governing authorities and as a citizen, I place myself under the governing authorities, or whether that's leadership in a local church and I I place myself under the leadership of a local church, or in this case, in the context of marriage. And Paul is calling wives to place themselves underneath the leadership and authority of a husband. That's what the word submit means. Now, there are some uh, who object to that, some who are Christians and who say, no, no, that's not what this is talking about, because look back at verse 21. Verse 21 of Ephesians 5 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, it's to one another. It's, it's each person to each person. So this idea of some kind of structure in marriage, no, 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 no. Everybody submits to everybody. Well, we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. And yes, it's true that all Christians should always have an attitude of humility to one another and an attitude of servanthood to one another. That's true of all Christians. But it doesn't necessarily negate the idea of structured relationships in church and family. The two are not mutually contradictory at a philosophical level. It's possible for someone who's in a leadership position to be kind, humble, have a servant attitude, and yet still be in a leadership position. The the two don't cancel each other out. And I think it's important to point out that the husband in verses 25 to 33 is not specifically commanded to submit. That's important. And in verses, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, parents are not called to submit to their children. And in verses 5 through 9, masters are not commanded to submit to their servants, even though they're supposed to be loving and gentle and all that. We're going to talk about all that. So, yes, it's true. We all submit to each other in a kind of a general sense, but that doesn't negate the idea of ordered relationships. 
And then we get the next word, the next key word. It says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. The next key word there is, is head. And the idea of head here obviously is figurative. He's not talking literally. He's not saying the husband is literally a head, I mean, you know, of his wife. It's, it's a figurative image. And it implies leadership and authority. That's what the word headship means in the New Testament and in New Testament Greek. Again, there are some uh, scholars, Christian scholars today, who debate that, uh, who want to say, no, 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 no. In New Testament Greek, the, the word head never connoted authority. That's an English understanding. But in Greek, it really didn't mean that. But, well, it's just not true. It really did mean that. If you were to say head in a figurative sense to a Greek-speaking person in the time of Christ, they would have understood the figurative connotation of leadership and authority. I mean, look at our own passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Just turn back a verse. And look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Here's a for instance. Ephesians 1, 19. Starting at the word, uh, the phrase, that power is like. This is talking about when God raised Jesus from the dead, when the Father raised the Son. It says, that power is like the working of His, God's mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I mean, clearly the word head there means authority or, or, or leadership or preeminence. I mean, the context demands that it be interpreted that way. It's all about being exalted over. And one of the things that Christ is exalted over is his body, the church. He's the leader, the sovereign over the church. And so... Uh, that's just one example of head meaning that. If you want, you can take out your sermon notes, which is this little insert in your bulletin. If you look on the front, uh, here are some other examples of the word head in New Testament Greek, meaning leadership and authority. Uh, look, look at the second quotation down, Colossians 2, 9 to 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus was God. That's another way to put that. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. And then, just for exhaustive argument's sake, I listed a bunch of other texts there from the Greek translation of the Old Testament in which the word head, kephale, is used to refer to authority, leadership, or rule. So why am I belaboring this? You're like, okay, I get it. What's the point? The point is, again, that there is a body of literature in Christian circles that's being developed that says, no, 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 no. Headship does not mean leadership and authority. And it's just wrong. It's erroneous. It refers to leadership and authority in a number of places. And certainly it does here, back in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit, put yourself under the authority of your husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife. And then I think here's the clincher. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So there's an obvious parallelism here that we'll explore more in a couple weeks. But there's the church and Christ 
is analogous to, or I should say the husband and wife is analogous to Christ and the church. And so that this relationship between Christ and the church has some parallels to some degree between the husband and the wife. And God calls husbands to a leadership role similar to, not exactly like, but similar to that of Christ over the church. Certainly no one is calling husbands God. Uh, <laughs> um, and that certainly is not the case in real life. But uh, there is some kind of analogous, limited sense in which God has called husbands to lead in the marriage and to have an authority in marriage. Husbands, love your wife. Or, uh, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And then I think the final evidence that this is what Paul is, in fact, talking about is the broader context. If you sort of step outward a little bit and look at the chapter as a whole, there's three pairs. There's wives and husbands, and then there's, what's next? Parents, uh, children and parents, and then there's servants and masters. So in each of these, you, in each of these pairs, you have the person who follows the leadership followed by the person who's called to the position of leadership, wives to husbands, children to parents, and then slaves to masters. So the, the whole context, I believe, supports this idea. So what is this text teaching? I believe that this text is saying that God has called the husband to a leadership role in marriage. He's given him a certain limited, it's limited, yes, but a real authority in marriage to lead a marriage in a godly, loving, humble, gentle way. And Paul calls wives to submit to that leadership of a husband and, and to follow it. And I understand that there are evangelical Christians who read this and, and they, they don't see that. Uh, I, I've read the books, I've read the articles, and that, you know, they're trying to explain this word here and soften this word down there and change it a little bit over here, trying to make it sound like it doesn't say what it really seems to be saying. But you know, just as, I mean, I can only speak for myself, everyone's, everyone's got to make their own interpretation uh, and, and, I mean, come to their own understanding of the text, but I've not been able to do the kind of interpretive, um, you know, contortionism <laughs> to, to get this text to fit what I wish it was saying. I mean, it seems to be saying what it's saying, and I, I believe it is. So that's what the text is saying. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's saying what you think it's saying. But then let's look at the second thing, which is to consider what our cultural would say, some cultural objections. Because, come on, let's be honest. Go to downtown Boston, pull a, a woman in a business suit aside, read her this text, and say, what do you think? <laughs> you know, she's going to laugh you right off the street. I mean, what is, is this from the Middle Ages? What is this kind of stuff? What are you talking about? Our culture is going to have a very strong negative reaction to this kind of teaching. It's just going to seem like something out of uh, the Dark Ages, like a time warp. So let's consider some cultural objections to this text. So I think there are some that we need to hear and think through. The first, uh, I'd like to consider three. The first objection I'd like to uh, consider is one we might call the cultural relativity objection. This objection kind of goes like this. Yes, it's true. Uh, Paul did teach wives to submit to their husbands. But of course he taught that because he was in a patriarchal culture. I mean, he was in a male-dominated society. A Jewish culture at that time was very patriarchal. In Roman law, I mean, men ruled society at all levels. So what do you think he's going to write? Of course, he's going to write out of his cultural framework. But the argument goes, that was Paul's little tiny box he operated in. We are in a different culture. 
We're in a culture where women can get a PhD. We're in a culture where women can be a CEO and a president and a president of a university. We're in a culture where women can make just as much money as men, who can be just as successful. So, so we live in a different cultural context, and how can we possibly adopt the ideas of Paul's cultural context? It just it doesn't make sense. We can't go backwards into that culture, the argument would go. So what are we supposed to say to that? Well, I think one thing, for those of us who believe that this is God's word, one thing I think we should note is that when Paul makes his argument in Ephesians 5, he does not appeal to cultural norms. Paul is not saying, hey, look, Christians, come on. Everyone around here, wives submit to their husbands, so let's just go along with it because, you know, we're trying to spread the gospel here, and and if you're all acting wild, well, people aren't going to believe the gospel. So for the sake of the gospel, would you just come on and submit to your husbands? I mean, that's not his argument. His argument comes, and we'll see this next week, from creation and redemption, from transcultural realities. And we'll look at that more next week, but just kind of point you in that direction. But the bigger problem with the cultural relativity argument, which obviously is more nuanced than what I'm saying here, but just for time's sake, that's the basic argument. The, the bigger philosophical problem with the cultural relativity argument is not making the cultural relativity argument, it's stopping the cultural relativity argument. Where does it stop? Everything could be explained culturally in the scripture. If there's anything you don't like in the Bible, you could say, well, it's just you know, part of the culture of that time. So we don't really believe that because we're in a different culture today. Well, you know, suddenly you've adopted a presupposition that, that each culture is true for itself. I mean, you've, you've slipped into a kind of postmodern relativism. And it's a dangerous move to make. It really is a slippery slope. Well, I mean, what about the cross? Maybe that's a culturally relative thing. Let's get, the, let's get rid of the cross in Christianity. That's culturally relative, right? I mean, Jesus was God's son, and the Father sent the Son to die for sinners. So that's tantamount to child abuse. And, and the cross is a form of capital punishment. And Americans are not excited about capital punishment. Certainly, well, not in Massachusetts anyway. Uh, you know, people, people don't believe in capital punishment. So therefore, uh, because it doesn't fit our culture, let's get rid of the cross. I mean, you can make that argument about anything, really. You could, because the Bible was spoken into a culture, God's timeless truths were spoken into time. And so it takes a very uh, discerning, precise kind of thinking to know how to interpret some of those things in Scripture. And if we start just throwing things out because it's cultural, well, you can throw out the whole Bible because it's cultural. Uh, it, it's a difficult thing to make, a difficult kind of thing to stop happening. If this is God's word, then we need to treat it as God's word and approach it from that perspective. Well, how about a third objection? And this one is very, uh, a significant one that I take very seriously, and I think it's one that we really need to hear as a church. And the objection is it's kind of related to the second one, but the third objection is very serious, and it, it goes like this. This text is the kind of thing that promotes and gives license to domestic violence. This text is the kind of text that seems to give men permission to oppress women in marriages and hurt women. I mean, I mean, think about it. There's a wife. She's being screamed at by her husband, yelled at. He's calling her names. He's criticizing her. He's belittling her. He's, he's guilt-tripping her. Everything seems to be her fault. He twists everything around. He, he's abusive. He's, uh, he pushes her. He slaps her. 
He throws things at her. And the wife says, what am I supposed to do in this marriage? She opens up her Bible, submit. <sighs> and, and so the argument goes, this text traps women and encourages abusive relationships. That's, that's a significant objection that I think we really need to hear. Is it true that men, husbands, have used this text or texts like it under the pretense of Christianity as a, a way of justifying the abuse of their wives. Is that true? Yeah. It has. Maybe you know some people. Maybe you are one of those wives who've had that scripture twisted in that way. But the key is, it's a twisting of scripture. That's the key. It is a warping of scripture. But let's be perfectly clear about this. You cannot legitimately get any kind of abusive relationship out of the Bible. If, someone, if there's a man who's using scripture to condone an abusive or denigrating relationship to his wife, that man is the worst kind of hypocrite that there is. Because the scripture just, you can't get there from here. You can't get there from the New Testament. You have to twist it. To, to justify abuse from this verse, you have to abuse the verse. To justify violence from this verse, you have to do violence to the verse first and twist it. Because notice what it says in verse 22. Wives... Submit to your husbands. Wives. Wives, this is your thing. This is your mail. Husbands, this isn't your mail. Read your own mail. Your mail is verse 25. That's your mail. You read that. Wives, this is your mail. It does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. That's where abuse happens. It says, wives, you voluntarily, as dignified, intelligent women, in, on, in, in honor to the Lord, you choose to submit voluntarily and willingly. It doesn't say husbands make it happen. That's abuse. Husbands, your job is verse 25. Husbands, watch TV and eat potato chips. No, love <laughs> your wives. Love your wives. And I don't want to spill the beans for next week, but just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Whoa. I mean, who's got the harder job sometimes, I wonder? To live up to Christ's example of self-sacrifice? That's incredible. The only kind of violence I can see that's appropriate in marriage is the husband doing violence to his own self-interests for the sake of the interests of his wife. That's the only kind of violence I could possibly see in marriage is a husband doing violence to his own self-interests just as Christ did violence to his own self-interests in order to promote the well-being and good and happiness and beauty and success of his wife. So, yes, this text has been twisted by abusive men. Quite frankly, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, I believe, my own conviction from study of scripture, is that abuse is a biblical grounds for divorce. And that if a husband becomes abusive, it's grounds for a wife to divorce him. I believe that biblically. I don't have a proof text like, say, for adultery. I can quote you one little verse for adultery. It's more of a a biblical argument based on the nature of covenant. And if you're interested in that, hey, you know, we can you know, hang out after the service and I can explain to you why I, I think that. And you can disagree or whatever. But I, I don't think that abuse you know, is something that you just have to kind of give into and say, well, I'll just keep being hit. I mean, no. This is, the marriage covenant is broken with abuse. So Paul is saying that the way God designed marriage is for husbands to be leaders for husbands to have a certain limited authority in marriage, and for wives to submit to that in the marriage relationship. And then we've looked at what the culture says, and the culture says, 
Oh, come on, that's ridiculous. The culture raises objections. But hey, let's turn it around. How's our culture doing when it comes to marriage? Hmm? Let's look at our culture's track record with its attitudes toward marriage and see what's happening. It's not giving us the tools to deal with marriage. Our culture is not giving us what we need to have happy marriages. We need something else. So, you know, who's in the little box? Is it Paul who's in the little box, or is it our culture? The little box that's called me, me, you know? It's, it's the deification of self-autonomy. That's what our culture is. It's individualism put on an altar and us bowing down to individualism. That's our culture. And that is always destructive to marriage, parenting. Any human relationship cannot survive a radical individualism. There must be submission in some sense. There must be a giving up to come together. You have to, otherwise it just won't happen. Well, let's kind of get practical here. We've looked at what the text says, how our culture objects. But let's look now at, um, at how this might look in real life. Okay, because this, this is, I think, where a lot of us struggle. You say, okay, I understand the text says this, but how do you do this in real life? This is the 21st century and, you know, world. I, I mean, for crying out loud, both spouses have to work just to afford a house nowadays. I mean, sometimes this is, this is a different world in which we live. Women are educated today, and they are empowered. And frankly, speaking personally, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's great the freedoms and privileges women have as opposed to other societies and other times. I think it's an awesome thing. But how then do you take marriage, the marriage relationship, and, um, and how do you understand the marriage relationship in such a way that you can function like this in a modern culture? I mean, how does that happen? This is what my wife and I have wrestled with because... We're both modern people. Neither my wife nor I were born in the 17th century. Uh, we were born in this century, or last century actually now, huh? And uh, we're living in the 21st century, so how do we make this work? My wife's an intelligent woman. She has a degree in literature. Uh, you know, I had an easy degree. I, I did a language degree. Language degrees are easy. That's if you want to you know, ease your way through college. Literature is a hard degree, and I think you graduated cum laude, didn't you? So, yeah. So she, she did. And then uh, when, we were in semi when I was in seminary, she worked. She put on the business suit with her little thing. She went into Boston. She earned the paycheck. I got the paycheck and spent it on the groceries. I mean, I was the, you know, I studied, and, and that's what I did in seminary. I studied, and then she put me through seminary. Uh, and in terms of personality, she's not a wimp. She's not a doormat. She's not, she's not a, a doormat you walk over. I'd say she's more like those um, severe tire damage things, you know? It's like... <laughs> The, the key is driving over it in the right direction, okay? <laughs> if you're going to go over it, you've got to go the right direction. So uh, she's... <laughs> she, she, this woman is not a pushover. She's not a person who just says, no, whatever you want, Jeremy, whatever you say. No, no, no. That's not how it works in our marriage, all right? So, okay, so that's who we are. And, you know, we're talking about this. How do we... Um, I didn't run the severe tire damage thing by you, did I? Yeah. <laughs> You know, sometimes you just got to go with it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Better to get forgiveness than permission. Um, so, so, you know, how, how, do we <laughs> how, how do we put this into effect? I mean, how, how do you do this submission thing when we're the kind of people we are living in the modern world where we are? And uh, one of the, I was sort of bouncing this idea off my wife, and one of the things that she suggested is she said, uh, you know, well, I, I think a lot of it is respect. 
that, that if someone's in a leadership role, you respect them. You, there, there's sort of a, a level of respect. It's, it's not an, a, a mindless allegiance to the person. It's not authoritarianism. But if someone has some kind of leadership position, you, you show them a little bit of respect and courtesy as part of that position. Not because they're better than you, but it's just part of the position in which God has placed them. And so uh, she's, you know, she says, how do people talk to their husbands? How do you object to your husbands? Wives, if your husband's doing something stupid and you have to set him straight, which in my marriage is a lot of the time, <laughs> and she has to set me straight about something, I mean, how does she do that? There's different ways to set somebody straight. You know, one way is to come at them and say, you're this, and rah, 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 and you always do that, and I'm sick of this, and rah, 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 you know? That's not respectful. I mean, there, there's different ways to, to rebuke somebody or, or to challenge somebody's ways. I mean, if, if you were to come to me, and, and let's say you saw me doing something, you're like, eh, I'm not so sure about that, and you're to come to me and challenge me on it, I mean, how would you do it? I, it? Me being a pastor in the church, would you just walk up and say, let me tell you something, pastor. <clears throat> I, I know you wouldn't, because you don't. Because in my years here as a pastor, I have been straightened out many times, and I deserved it. And, and people have corrected me and challenged me and said, how about you think about this? But you, you do it in a way that's, you know, Respectful, And it makes it easier for me to take when somebody comes along and says, hey, Pastor, you're doing a great job. I love you. I've been praying for you. You know, there's one thing, though, I'm not so sure about. Let me just run it by you. You know, I can hear that. You can hear that. We can hear that kind of a rebuke. And so I think, wise, you know, how do you talk to your husbands? What kind of a message do you convey? Not so much in what you say, but how you say it. Or another one my wife brought up I thought was great. Is she says, it's also how women talk about their husbands when their husband's not around. She says this is something that is one of her pet peeves, is when she's hanging out with other women in casual conversation, not some woman coming and confiding to her with a struggle, but casual conversation, and women just badmouth their husbands right and left. She says this is just, you know, she's so uncomfortable with that, and rightfully so. It's, it's not a way to, to show respect to someone who's been given by God a certain limited leadership role in the family. Um, another one's decision making. How do you go about making decisions, especially those big life decisions? You know, well, you talk about it. You talk about it with your spouse. You, you discuss the issues. You plan. You pray. You go back and forth. And, but, you know, what happens when you just keep, can't finally come to a decision? What do I do? What would happen if you just said, okay, fine, you decide? I mean, if some of you wives were to come to your husband and say, hey, look, this is a big decision. You heard what I have to say. We've talked about it. But here's what I want you to do. You make the call, and whatever you decide, I'm going to support you in it. I bet some of your husbands would just you know, kill, kill right over. Like, what did you just say? You know, I know this was something that happened for us in um, what I would say is probably one of the most uh, critical decisions we ever made in our lives. Uh, about seven years ago now, six maybe six years ago now, uh, I was serving here as the interim assistant pastor. Uh, not the assistant pastor, the interim assistant pastor, and I have the little plaque to, to prove it. And... Um, <laughs> I got a call from my home church out in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I grew up. Church where I got saved, church where I became a Christian. And the pastor there was getting close to retirement. And he said, Jeremy, you know, I'd like you to consider coming out here for serve as my assistant pastor. Not interim, assistant pastor for two or three years. And I'll train you. And then when I retire, you can take over leadership of the church. And so I was like, wow, you know, I, uh, you know and I was trying to figure out what to do. I mean, on the one hand, that's a great opportunity, and I know the people, and I know the church. Uh, I would love to be back there with my family. But on the other hand, if I went back there, my wife wouldn't know anybody. 
She'd have no support system, new mom, little baby, no support system. And I was like, okay, that, that's not as good. But here in this church, my job isn't as secure because I'm still the interim assistant pastor. Uh, so, so there's no guarantee that I'm going to have a job here once a new senior pastor is chosen. But at the same time, this is where my wife has roots and connections. And, and so, you know, for about a month and a half, two months, it was round around the mulberry bush. What do you think? I don't understand. You know, we talked and we debated and we prayed and I talked to people and I talked to her more and she talked. And, you know, I don't know. Finally, I think she just got sick of me <laughs> just going around and around. And she finally just said to me, look, Jeremy, you decide and I'll support whatever you decide. And it was like, wow. This, this space kind of in our relationship just emerged, opened up. And I could step into it and do what God wanted me to do, which was be a leader. It's like she gave me permission. She gave me space to lead. And, and so I, I, it changed my whole approach to the decision-making process by being given that kind of permission. And so I, I thought about it, and I finally decided uh, to stay, which for me I think is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life was to stay here. And I, I contributed to God's grace completely. But, you know, I, I thought about the, the, the situation and I didn't want to go to Las Vegas for two reasons. One is because there's something in my gut said it wasn't right, and I'm kind of an intuitive type person, so that's sort of how I make decisions. It's a scary thing. Um, but but I, I, you know, I just didn't feel right. But the other, the big uh, rational dis, uh, factor was I didn't think it was good for my wife to go back there. And then it's like, this is Ephesians 5, all happening. She's saying, I'm going to follow your leadership. And I'm saying, you know, I love you, and I'm, I would like to go back to see my family, but I'm going to sacrifice my self-interest for what's good for you. And I was loving her, and it's like, it worked. And God blessed it. And so it was, wow, this, this really can work. Let me challenge you a little bit, ladies. Could it be, could it be that perhaps, not in every marriage, but in some marriages, part of the reason that your husbands are detached withdrawn, uncommunicative, and, and don't want to plug into the marriage? Could it be that part, not all of it, but part of the reason is because there's no space for them to be the leader of the family? That you've created no space for them to be the leader of the family? That they can't step up to the plate and be the men they need to be because you haven't given them any plate to step up to? That by your you know, attitude and, and pushing and, and manipulating and cajoling and talking and twisting it's like the husband's like, well, you know, you shouldn't listen to me anyway. You know, it doesn't matter what I say. I'm just going to go to the dugout and watch TV. You know, is, is it possible that in some cases that's the dynamic that's taking place in the marriage? Well, look, we're way over time. I need to close this, this sermon up. So let me just leave you with the Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 challenge. Here's the Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 challenge. Try it. I've tried to appeal to you biblically and theologically. I've tried to appeal philosophically and apologetically. So now let me just reduce myself to sheer old pragmatism. Give it a shot. Try it for a month, you know. <laughs> no obligation. Money back guarantee. One month. Tr try it for a month and see what happens. God created marriage. God knows how it works. And wives, if you will function in your marriage... The, God, the way God is calling you to function in his word, don't be surprised if you suddenly begin to experience God's blessings on your marriage. Let's pray. Lord, we, we submit ourselves to you.
I submit myself to you. You know what I am, God. I'm just a, a total sinner. Lord, I deserve hell. I deserve eternal judgment and wrath for my sin. And yet you have so mercifully saved me by your grace. And so, God, I confess that I am saved by grace and through faith in Christ alone, not by my good works. And so, God, as a sinner saved by grace, I just submit these, these words in your text humbly. I am in no position to tell women what to do. I, I, I'm just trying to get to heaven myself. But, God, we come to your word, and we just pray that you might use it in the hearts of people in this church. Lord, I want to pray specifically for marriages. I want to pray for anyone here who's married, that, that you would bless those marriages, that you would strengthen them, that you would help wives to examine their place in the marriage. And, and uh, God, make us a people who conform to your word. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who's separated, divorced. Lord, uh, whose marriages are really struggling in some way. God, would you put, just put your hand upon them? Would you just extend to them your love, your forgiveness, your grace? Lord, would you just let them know how much you love them and that the divorce is not the unforgivable sin, that there is life afterwards, that you are a God of mercy and redemption. Lord, I pray for those here who are unmarried and, and thinking about marriage or maybe someday hoping to get married but haven't found the right person yet. Lord, I just pray for them that you would help them to conform their thinking about marriage to what your word says so that if, if that day comes along, they'll be able to just hit the ground running in their marriage and do it in a godly and biblical way. Lord, help us. We need you, Spirit, so that we can live this kind of life that we've read about in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name.